We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 174, for October 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we try to demystify the grad school process. So, don't forget to read the fine print on those applications, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today in, actually, I'm joining him in his bedroom in his house, Bill in California. Yeah, hello. <laughs> and uh, Stephen in Cal- in snowy Calgary. Yes, I am not at Bill's house. <laughs> There's no snow here. <laughs> not in sunny California. Yeah. Do you, do you want me to send you some? I could I could send you some. <laughs> It'd be nice to see what it was like. All right. So just a little note about the audio, because as a as a as a podcast audio engineer, this is going to drive me nuts. But to anybody else who's a podcast person that like does podcasts, sorry for this, but we are recording on the same track because that's just the nature of the beast right here. So and, and we're also in a room where we're sharing a microphone, we're passing it back and forth. So apologies for that. If there's any weird audio things I can't take care of in post. Uh, aside from that, we're still going to have a great conversation and we are going to talk about grad school. So Bill, this was kind of your idea. I'm going to have you kick this off with uh, what you want to talk about since you are a professor at Berkeley and deeply embedded in this whole process. So take it away. All right. Thanks. I guess I just wanted to create this show to try and help individuals who are trying to get into graduate school because right about now is the time when people are leaving the field and they're realizing, hey, maybe I might want to try to grad school because I didn't really enjoy my summer as much as I thought I would. And I also am not looking forward to unemployment. And there's a chance that if I get a better degree, move further in the education realm and break through the glass ceiling, I'll be able to uh, keep doing archaeology over the winter. So uh, right about now, anyone who's thinking about going on to grad school, they're filling out those applications. They're starting to apply to grad schools. They're starting to uh, think about getting back into the game of school. So on my end, that means that I spend quite a bit of my time wrangling uh, applications from folks who are trying to apply, but mainly answering questions from folks who want to try to get into school. So the last couple of days, I've talked to several students who are thinking about going to school. They're thinking about applying to a place like Berkeley. But it reminded me of what I did back when I was trying to get into grad school. And I don't know if I actually was knowledgeable on how the entire system works. So that's why I wanted to uh, try to create a little bit more information about uh, the grad school process and how you get in, how it actually works. I believe I've seen in the news lately, you just have to pay a whole bunch of money to the school and then you, uh, then you, then you get in. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look closely, Berkeley's not one of the schools, at least anthropology, that you can just pay a bunch of money and get into the school, right? So if you're trying to get into a school like this that hasn't quite gotten to the 
cash for scholars uh, threshold, you're going to have to go through the regular process, which means filling out the forms and, and trying to get in normally. All right. So let's let's talk about people. You know, for people who are thinking about grad school, there's there's a number of different options, actually. Well, there's the the types of schools where you still keep working and it's kind of a remote attendance sort of thing. Adam State, who we've had on before, is one of those types of schools. There's the really hyper focused grad schools that on CRM, for example, like Sonoma State has a really good CRM program and a number of other ones do as well. And another school has a a good program, actually, that we're going to be advertising for here shortly. We've set up the agreement already at Simon Fraser University. So there's your first free bit of uh, uh, advertising. We've done stuff with them before. Uh, And then there's the schools like Berkeley, you know, the the state schools that are you can you can do other things, a little bit of a bigger program. So what's I I guess what's the first step in, in figuring out this whole process? Where do you start? I'm glad you said that because there is a lot to think about. But the number one thing that I think anyone who's trying to get into grad school needs to do is they need to reach out and start talking to the people who would actually be teaching the classes at the grad school, right? So unlike undergrad where you can just take test scores and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff and then just spam out uh, a bunch of applications and stuff and have a pretty good chance of getting in, graduate school is a much more difficult uh, path to navigate because there's way fewer students that come into each program. So with that, you know, the the departments have uh, less wiggle room to admit people as freely as they'd like. And then places like Berkeley have very real limitations on space. Now, there's other places. Um, an unnamed university has a mascot of the Sun Devils. We'll just take as many people as they possibly can because they will just jam them into online classes and let them, you know, try to make it through however they can without very much uh, mentorship or assistance. But other state schools like Berkeley, Arizona, uh, the University of Idaho, where I want, they have very real limitations on staff and their advising workloads, but also uh, space because they expect individuals to actually try to live in that town while they're going to school. So in a world where there's not very much space, meeting individuals and being you know, face-to-face, talking with professors, talking with the staff that are in the office, I think that is the number one place to start. That's where everything begins. And, and that's my biggest uh, piece of advice right away, to connect with the people you want to work with. All right. But let's say you're, I mean, you're working in CRM right now and you're out on a 10 day and you're sitting in a hotel room, you know, and you're thinking about, man, I really should go to grad school and I should figure all that stuff out. How how do you actually set those things up? Will these professors, like you hear about people going to college campuses and maybe at these, these big events where you can actually meet somebody. I actually, somebody that I worked with, she did that when she was going down to Arizona state and, and she went and actually met with a bunch of people physically do you need to do that? Because a lot of these shovel bums can't afford to do that and they just want to connect via email or just send in an application. What are their chances if they if they do it that way? Well, I mean, I think your chances are still good. But, you know, the number one thing is uh, if you're if you are an individual who's sitting in your hotel room and you realize, I think I should get a master's, I think I might want to go on for a Ph.D. or something like that. If you're that kind of person, then you're motivated to get the degree, but you're going into a system that's still revolving around people finishing projects like theses and uh, dissertations and stuff. So you may have the motivation of, I just need a graduate degree, but the system that you're going into is organized around a certain project. So think about what you would ever want to study for your uh, master's, but not, you know, hey, it'd be rad to do underwater Egyptian archaeology. 
start thinking about, do you have the skills, experience, the ability, the time and all that stuff to actually pull that off? Is this just still a dream or is this something that you actually think you can finish in one or two years? Because it's one thing to have all the scores and the ability to get into a graduate program. But then when you get there, if you have some kind of ridiculous, I guess, you know, I should not say ridiculous. I should say very difficult to achieve in two years project for your master's then it's it's it might be off-putting to the program. They might not want to admit you because what you have proposed is not really something that someone could finish in two years. That kind of brings up a question that I had, which is maybe you can touch on how, how does someone even choose a school? How do you decide where you want to apply and coordinate your efforts in trying to network and whatnot? That's also an excellent question. Uh, and I'm glad that you posed that too because – once you've gotten past the place where you think you have a project that you would like to do for a graduate degree, then you need to start looking at where in, I mean, I assume that most of the people who are listening are U.S. citizens, but where in your country is there that opportunity? So once again, going back to the Egyptian underwater archaeology thing, if, you, if you're already an open water certified scuba diver and you know you have connections or some kind of way to do research in Egypt, then you might want to try to look at a place that does that kind of thing where you have citizenship, right? So if you're a U.S. citizen, where is there an Egyptology program that you could apply to? Where is there an underwater archaeology program that you could apply to, right? So start there and then maybe work out. And you may find real quick that you know there isn't that capacity in your state or your country or whatever that has that kind of stuff. So then you might want to go outward. So do you actually want to go to a school in Egypt and study that? Do they have the capacity to do that? Or can you change your project and still do underwater archaeology, but maybe it's not in Egypt? And Stephen in our back chat is like, man, I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> no, not a clue. It's like narrow it down to a project, like a singular project. Yeah, no. <laughs> Okay, so I guess maybe you don't have to have it narrowed all the way down to a single project, but maybe an idea of something that you really would like to pursue for multiple years. So we all had, you know, we all went to graduate school and uh, I think all of us wanted to do archaeology and that was our number one goal. And many of us, by the time we got to grad school, knew that CRM was our path. So no, we didn't specifically know what the project was going to be. But, you know, each one of us had an idea of, okay, I want to do, you know, Native American lithics or something like that. Or I'm fully interested and willing to do historical archaeology, but I don't really know where it's at, right? So I didn't know when I went for my master's what specific project I was aiming for, but I knew I wanted to do historical archaeology. So I tried to choose programs that actually had historical archaeologists on staff. And then I spent the time trying to call them on the phone or meet with them uh, at conferences. So that's the other thing. You don't have to spend all your time going all the way to, you know, places far away to introduce yourself, but you do need to talk to people on the phone. It needs to be beyond email because in a world where a lot of people want to get into something that only has a few spots, if all you ever do is send out generic form letters saying, I really love you and I want to know more about historical archaeology and this is totally what I want to do, but you send it out to 45 different professors, that impersonal you know, tone and approach and everything is not going to get you as much mileage as, I know this person, they recommended I reach out to you. Is there time for us to talk on the phone or you know, I'll be there next February, can I you know, look you up? You know, most of the time I'll prefer the phone over actual in person because I don't live in Berkeley. So 
you know, most of the people that I'm actually interested in seeing apply to Berkeley, I talk to on the phone. But sometimes they do actually come by my office and more often I do see them at the SHA or other conferences. So you don't have to meet them in place or in person. I'm curious about that too. Like if uh, somebody applies, maybe they don't have the strongest application, right? Maybe they they went to undergrad, they did okay there. Now they've been doing CRM for three or four years and they want to come and go to graduate school. But they're, they're a really great, passionate CRM archaeologist. You know, they really like what they're doing. But like I said, maybe they didn't have the strongest grades in their undergrad or even high school or something like that. But they come and meet you. Is there flexibility in the application process where you can kind of look past some of their academic achievements and, and still get them in if they seem like a solid person? Yeah. And that's one of the main reasons why you would want to meet people, because you're going to be going against international scholars for a place like, you know, Harvard or Yale or Berkeley, right? That have perfect grades and have, you know, started their own nonprofit and all this other stuff. But if that's the kind of person that's not, you know, really personable or someone who the faculty thinks that they can actually work with and stuff like that, even though this is a perfect candidate, they're probably not going to get get accepted to all the programs that they apply for. Now, this dream candidate's probably applying to nine different schools, and because they're amazing, they're going to get into three or four of those schools, right? But the ones that they don't get into, it's probably because the faculty there didn't think they were the kind of student they'd want to work with, right? So if you are that person like I was, I was that person who didn't have extraordinary test scores and didn't have extraordinary grades and all that stuff, by me going there and talking to the folks that was kind of, you know, the, the biggest difference. And I do know there's, especially when I was applying for my master's program, the ones where I just wrote applications and sent them in and asked for letters and stuff like that, I didn't get the same response from those schools as the ones where I had called people on the phone or met professors there and talked to them, right? Then I do feel like those things kind of overcame uh, academic limitations that I had at the time. Now, as an individual who's the one who's trying to uh, figure out who should come to Berkeley, I can tell you that test scores are not always the main predictor or standardized tests. You know, we're not 100% basing everything on those. And actually, there's a movement among a lot of the UC schools to get away from the standardized test scores because of, you know, they're just they're not really always a good predictor of who's going to finish the program and who will do well. Okay. Now looking at programs too, because uh, we were talking earlier about what, I guess, what you would study, what kind of thing you would do. And, and, and all of us that went to grad school, you're right. When I went to grad school, I mean, I didn't even, honestly, I always wanted to go to grad school, but I, I really didn't sit and do the research until somebody kind of dropped it in my lap that the University of Georgia had this program that was an exact fit for what I've been looking for. Because this old professor of mine, she was still an amazing person and in tune to that like years later. And so she called me out of the blue and was like, Hey, there's this new program, go check it out. And then I got accepted and I went and it was a hundred percent focused on CRM and it was nothing in particular. I still had to do a thesis. I, I still had to do a project, but I, I chose one like a data set that, that was already there that hadn't been, nothing had been done with it yet actually been excavated in the seventies. Cause in that short program, there was no time to actually do field research. You had to bring a data set with you or, or find something there. So that's what I did. And I personally, I recommend if you're going into CRM, 
to just get in and get out and not worry about the student loans as much as you can. Try not to stay there very long. Uh, if you're going to a longer program, you might be able to get scholarships. I mean, not scholarships, but grants um, if you're going to help out, which could offset some of those costs, which might make it easier for you to stay longer. But the longer you stay there, the longer you're out of the workforce as well and and, and not really not really making any money. That's why some of the programs like Adam State are kind of big. But I don't really know where I'm going with this, but it's basically when you're thinking about I, I think what I'm trying to say is when you're going to grad school or thinking about going to grad school, don't let what you're going to do at grad school be the driving force. It's really what are you going to get out of grad school and what's the rest of your life going to look like? Grad school is a very short period of time, but it's going to influence the rest of your career. And, you know, knowing where that is, like maybe you want to work in Nevada. And so you go to a school that has a lot of professors or students or grad students or programs with field schools or projects in Nevada, you know, so that's what you focus on. You get that experience and you go there and you, you do that thing. So maybe that's one thing to think of. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree, especially if you're going to do CRM and and you're going for a master's and you want to do that. But I would beg to differ for the PhD. It's just a different kind of degree. Uh, uh, In a lot of ways, you know, the the master's is what you need to stay alive in, in CRM. But the PhD, there's something else that's behind the individual who goes for that degree. I mean, there's a different kind of drive. A lot of times the drive is they want to be a professor. You'll hear dismal results on how many individuals end up being professors and all that stuff. But really, for the master's, you still have to do a lot lot of the same things you have to do for a PhD to get into the program. But like Chris said, you do want to get in and out. So I think that going to a terminal master's is an excellent idea because all the resources of that institution are going towards their master students, which means any TA thing, any grant, all the travel grants, all that kind of stuff, it's all going for their master's students. For the PhD, though, you know, that's kind of the big dog at any school that has a PhD program. And so if you get a master's at one of those, it's best for you just to hurry up and get out as fast as possible. I mean, the, the ones that have a terminal MA, a lot of times they'll be aiming towards you getting out as fast as you possibly can. But definitely at a PhD place because it's harder for you to get grants. It's harder for you to get research funding and stuff because the PhD students can get it all. So, you know, there is a lot more pressure to get out as fast as possible. Well, that's good. And a lot to think about. And let's continue the discussion about PhDs because I know I've got some questions and I think Stephen does as well on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, 
processing and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. All right. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 174. And we're talking about grad school and just demystifying grad school with myself, Bill White, and Stephen Wagner. So we were talking about PhDs right at the end of the last segment there, Bill. And I, I mean, I have a fundamental question. If you're planning on staying in CRM, what is the value of getting your PhD if there is one? I, I know there's some definitely some companies that we know of. Like I can think of Far Western. I mean, they are top heavy on the PhD level. If you want to be a PI at Far Western, you better have your PhD. And there's other companies like that as well. But is there, aside from these unicorn companies where a PhD is going to actually get you somewhere, is it, do you think a PhD is useful if you're not going in the academic route right away? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's really two main reasons why you would pursue a PhD uh, for your own personal edification. So there was a guy I used to work with in CRM. He'd been doing it a lot longer than I had, but he finished his PhD really close to, you know, he had been doing it for 15 years or whatever. And then he finished his PhD. So probably the last five years of his CRM career after he'd already been doing it for 10 years. And then he said he never wanted to be a professor. So I was like, why did you ever do it? And he just looked at me in the truck and said, cause I knew I could. So there's that whole thing, right? Especially if, you, if you're if you not taking out loans, this individual is a veteran, uh, they didn't have any loans before. Uh, when you get into a PhD program, a lot of times you're not actually paying fees or anything. I mean, you shouldn't be paying fees if you're getting a PhD in archaeology. You should not be paying any fees or tuition. That should all be waived and part of your funding package. But at any rate, you know, it's not costing you anything more than just the time of you not the lost opportunity of working, and the money that it costs for you to survive, which that can be tough for many people. So, you know, if you're going to do it and the guy was, you know, 40 or so, he knew he was going to do archaeology for a lot longer. So, heck, you know, why not? He did it. Then the other reason why you'd want to do it is if you do want to be a PI, because right now in 2019, we have these unicorn companies like Far Western. In 2029, it may not be the same. Definitely by 2039, the way things are going, I, I'm pretty sure many of the people who are in charge are going to be having PhDs or there won't even be a CRM field because so many individuals are getting PhDs that they, if they want to keep doing archaeology, they go into CRM if they want to keep doing it. So you can imagine over 20 years with all these PhDs pouring out and if they want to stick with archaeology going into CRM, eventually the far western model will just be the CRM model. And then also if you want to be the state historic preservation officer, if you want to run uh, archaeology at an air force base or something like that, a place that's you know got a lot of management obligations and stuff like that, then it's easier for them to get a PhD and it's easier for you to justify yourself if you have a PhD you can definitely see how the state historic preservation officer, if they're an archaeologist, is going to have to have a PhD. So being one of only two people on this podcast, that which is kind of amazing for this podcast, that have gone through a PhD program, Doug is the other one. What would you say some of the biggest, I guess, some of the biggest benefits, for, you know, a master's degree versus a PhD? I Just looking at it from the outside, not having gone through a PhD program, it looks like to me a master's degree, you're going to get a lot of theory and you're also going to have uh, some strong probably research capabilities because you're doing your first like thesis if you've never done anything like that before. But then what can you add on to that with a PhD? Is it more of that, but more intense? Or is there something you think you're getting that you're maybe not getting at the master's degree level? Yeah, with a PhD, there's more of an emphasis of you to be more of an academician. So things like organizing sessions at conferences, writing peer-reviewed journal articles, being uh, someone who adds to edited volumes and stuff. 
because the PhD is longer, you have more time to do that kind of stuff, but also it's kind of expected. Nobody really expects someone at a master's level to write an article for American antiquity. No one expects a PhD to graduate without more than one article, you know, in American antiquity. You're spending six years or so at four and a half, if you go fast four, and you're going to spend a lot of time writing. And there's a lot of, if you're going to aim for the academic route, you're going to need journal articles, books, and you're also going to have to do that higher level of scholarly stuff that's, you know, at the uh, professorate uh, category. So teaching, developing your own classes, there's more motivation to do that. There's more motivation for you to get larger grants for you to pull off your own research and stuff. Nobody really expects that uh, from masters folks, but basically there's just a higher level of uh, kind of people just expect you're going to achieve at a higher level if you're going for a PhD program. Now, uh, the reality of that is somewhere in between, right? Some people write entire whole books and do, you know, extraordinary work and end up being leaders in their small area by the time they finish their PhD. And the vast majority of other people end up somewhere else. And many other people just break because of that pressure, right? With with the master's, you're four semesters, get in, get out, you know, we're really trying to aim on you getting out, get that, you know, uh, degree so that you can get back to work. With a PhD, there's kind of, you know, you start real hard, but then there's still many more years left. And that's where a lot of people suffer uh, burnout. You know, being at that high level for so long is not really healthy for you. Uh, and so that's the reason why we don't all have PhDs or masters is, right? It's a, it's a higher level. It's much more difficult. And then the PhD is even more difficult than that. I guess the one thing I worry about, especially starting with the master's degree program, It really seems like in CRM, which is a small field of people to begin with, you know, maybe I think Doug's stats have shown there's uh, anywhere from eight to like 12,000 people practicing in CRM in the United States uh, alone. And, And that's a pretty small number. So I know of at least a few more people and there's every year there's a few more people I've known in the field for a while that that go to a master's degree program like Adam State or something like that. And uh, and they decide to get their master's degree, partly because they think it's it's going to change their lives. Right. Not looking at the other people they physically know with a master's degree and saying, is your life that much different than mine or do you just have more student loans? <laughs> you know, And uh, so I worry that with this mythology that it's going to improve your life dramatically to get a master's degree where it may improve your opportunities, but I I don't think you're going to be driving Bentleys as we've said before. Right. So it might improve your opportunity though for different things, but with it being, I don't want to say relatively easy to get a master's degree, but if you want to do it, you can probably do it. Uh, You just got to commit to it. You're going to have the student loans and you do it and you get it done. Is it going to dilute the, the field a little bit where a master's degree is going to start not meaning really anything. And to be a crew chief, you're going to need to have a master's degree. Uh, I mean, that may end up happening. It may end up happening because there are so many people who finish a master's degree that now, you know, in 2019, it's kind of turned into like a, you know, expectation, right? Uh, We've talked about this before. Companies have a lot of motivation to hire people who have a master's degree, secretary, interior standards, that whole thing, but also because they can just get it. And, you know, the harsh reality is they can also pay those people, many of them less than they actually should be getting. So that's also another thing that people need to think about, especially if they're going for a PhD, thinking that they're going to do CRM. You definitely don't want to be taking on too much debt if that's your plan, because like you were saying, you may not end up in a situation where you're driving Bentleys and stuff like that. 
I don't think it's going to water down the master's. It's a graduate degree. And also, I don't think it's easy at all to finish a degree. I mean, most Americans don't even have a college degree because it ain't easy. And a master's is just that much harder. And so there's definitely some motivation on the part of the individual, but definitely some, you know, we, we had the ability, you know, economically as far, as far as where we were in our lives and stuff like that, we had a certain level of privilege to get our master's is right. So you can imagine someone who has, has a family and is working, you know, 50 hours a week at the steel mill wants to switch over to CRM. That's going to be pretty hard to finish uh, a master's because you have so many obligations, right? So I don't think it'll be easier. I do think that eventually we'll get to the point where there's so many people with PhDs, we might see more of them over the next 10 or 15 years uh, at the crew chief level. But I definitely don't think that, you know, the undergrad degree is is worthless or whatever if you want to get into CRM. However, with the glass ceiling, we all know you're going to have to go up to a graduate degree if you want to stay in there for the long term. Uh, just a little side note. I definitely, I, I my program was uh, three semesters long, you know, basically a full academic uh, calendar year. And uh, so it was accelerated and quick. But uh, the, the reason why I didn't work during my master's degree was not because of, uh, you mentioned privilege. It wasn't because of white privilege. It was wife privilege. My wife was still working in CRM. She's downstairs now here at Bill's house. She was still working in CRM and sending back her, peer, sending home her per diem checks. Yeah. <laughs> Living off her paychecks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I have to admit, I mean, that definitely helps, you know, a program like um, the online programs, if it's, you know, if you need that check in the block for a, for a master's degree, that's probably the way to go. Yeah. And in my case, I ended up taking out a bunch of loans for my master's. And then my wife had a job too, when I was doing my PhD. So I, I did take out loans for preschool, even though I had their full funding package, which maybe I should start talking about that in a second. But yeah, you know, I was getting tuition waiver. I had some uh, fellowships and stuff like that. But to send my kids to a preschool where they're actually going to learn things and, you know, be in a pretty safe place, it cost money. And so we had to make up the difference with uh, student loans. So, yeah, you know, if, if my wife, if I, first of all, if I didn't have my wife and I had two kids, I'm pretty sure I couldn't go back for a PhD with what they give you for the funding package, right? I'm pretty sure that I couldn't, uh, you know, have made it even close to this far if I hadn't have been willing to take on some debt to try and risk it, right? And so, so many other people are in that situation. Uh, and, and also the first time I was taking out loans, I actually didn't have any idea about, you know, to me, it was just like, yeah, I have free money. So paying that stuff off is something I got to deal with still, even though I've been out for 10 years or whatever, you know, talking about the funding. So uh, <laughs> in the United States, we live in this world where we have built a lot of stuff and we actually don't take in enough tax dollars to take care of all of it. And our universities are some of a lot of that stuff, right? So one of the things that maybe parents have said or old timers or whatever about these worlds where they could live in, where they just were a carpenter over the summer and still were able to pay for Berkeley tuition or, you know, they don't understand how you could, you know, possibly move out uh, because, you know, you've taken all this debt on or you're so irresponsible. And then another thing that's, you know, said is that college costs so much money, but if you start looking at it, nobody really pays retail because you all get fellowships or some kind of waiver or something like that. You shouldn't really be paying retail for a PhD. I can tell you that. Uh, so the tuition, the sticker shock as it getting more and more and more, uh, the reason, one of the reasons why it's getting more and more is because our government doesn't invest in the universities anymore because they can't afford to, because we don't pay enough taxes, right? So that's another combination. But also, nobody actually, in fact, pays 
the full sticker price because we all get fellowships or tuition waivers or something like that. So if you're looking at a graduate program and you're aiming for a master's, if you can find a way to find a place that has a good fit, like something that's going to do the project you want to do, professors that like you, that you can get in, you qualify to get in. Try to get into one where you actually can qualify for some of those uh, fellowships and grants and other stuff so that you don't end up paying the full amount for your tuition or that you get you know, some kind of living money, right? Some kind of salary as a TA or something like that. If you're going for a PhD, I can tell you right now, do not go to any PhD for anthropology that's making you pay tuition. You should be, if you get in, you know, that's the kind of thing that they do for lawyers and doctors where they don't get a tuition waiver and they've got to borrow a quarter of a million to finish their program. Don't borrow a quarter of a million to get a PhD in anthropology. Just don't do it. It's not a good idea. And not only that, but that tells you a lot about your program because I know it's difficult to get in for a PhD, but really if you don't get into one that you know, is going to offer you a tuition waiver and a little bit of funding package, something, then that means that either your project and your approach and everything that you want to do right now for at this very moment is not a good fit for that program or that that program's not a very good one because they can't afford graduate students and they're making them pay for their education. Yeah. It's funny. You're talking, we're talking about uh, student loans right now because I'll tell you what, I was just, just the other day, I've got the Nelnet and the Navient uh, companies, both you know, managing my student loans. And I was just looking at those and the one of them, the Navian ones, I think are the ones for my undergrad that are almost paid off. Finally, um, I graduated in 2005. And, and the only reason it's really getting paid off as quickly as it is, is my nobody helped pay for school when I went to school. Um, I just got student loans. However, I think my grandma, when she's she's in her 80s now, and she gets a pretty good pension plus Social Security, and she doesn't like things like inheritance. So she kind of wants to spend it now. So she's sending me a little bit extra every year just to help to put towards my student loans, which is amazing. And, you know, I, I can't even think of how good that is because the, the two loan payments I have every month. One is one from one company is $355 a month. And the other one's 259 a month. Just imagine what you could do if you had that money back, right? Well, one of them is about to be done and then I'll be down to the 259 a month. And that's the lower interest rate ones. But that's still, those are my grad school student loans. And that's uh, still about $32,000 that I have left, you know, and I have a total of about close to 40 right now. And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> you know, we just bought Yikes. a house. I've got, I know I've got 40 grand in student loan debt. So was it worth it? I don't know. You know, I, I just, I try not to think about that. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anyone how much money I owe in student <laughs> loans, man. Cause my wife also has a graduate degree and she studied abroad in, in uh, the Netherlands. So she paid for her life to stay abroad in a country where she couldn't work. Yeah. So we're paying on that. Wow. Uh, no, I'm I'm incredibly lucky. I finished my uh, coursework in in the 20th century, so um, <laughs> I've uh, I've pretty much paid off my my loans. Yeah, years ago. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah, like yeah, it was a while ago, and and yeah, you, like like you were talking about it, it. The sudden influx of like extra cash every month is. is mind-boggling it's <laughs> like imagine you know i mean you might as well just go out and buy a car because it's it's essentially a car payment so yeah or get a nice uh get a nice scratch pad for ruckus to tear up <laughs> oh he, he'll make his own it's, it's cool he'll make his own if whatever furniture you've got laying around right <laughs> yeah pretty much but but it I, I, it does make me think you know just off the top of my head that 
should you be should should we encourage or consider taking on as much student loans that essentially amounts to more than one year of income? Like, is there a point when, I mean, you know, sort of something like a diamond ad, right? Like, you know, should, should cost two months salary, you know, our, our reasonable expectations yeah. of our salary is, is, is there is a point where it's too much. Um, and yeah. and wh- where is that going to be? I don't know. And, and and also the other thing is because of the nature of the market that we're in uh, or nature of the industry we're in, there's a lot of mechanisms to fuel that. Right. So the secretary interior and the standards, I don't think that I'm, I'm not blaming the actual secretary interior. I don't know who they are. If I knew who they were, then I might blame them. Right. But I'm just saying Angry the standards, <laughs> they push us to do this. Right. And it's not healthy. I don't know. Because I couldn't get a full time job without a master's degree in CRM. Yeah, so so it's yeah it's necessary, but you know something to consider is if you're looking at it at, at a certain program, and you know like th- there is still the realization of like maybe, and and, and I hate to say it, but maybe this is not the right industry. Mm-hmm. Like you know, yeah. like you, you know, you have a grad degree. Go do something. I don't know, um, lucrative with it somehow. <laughs> yeah, make apps. Just make a lot of more apps. There you yeah, go. Make apps. That's what it is. Yeah. Fortnite skins. <laughs> All right. So on, on that note, we're going to take our last break, and we'll wrap up the discussion on the other side. Back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 174, where we're talking about grad school. And by the end of this, we'll have Stephen Wagner in a PhD program at uh, at Berkeley. <laughs> so here, Bill, tell him how he's Bill, tell him what he's won. <laughs> uh, if you if you choose this path, my friend, I'll tell you what you've lost. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Um, the number one reason why I wanted to record this one is because I wanted to walk people through the entire process of how it works, right? So first of all, you've decided you want to go back. You're sick of it. You've listened to the f- previous 40 minutes of this podcast. and You now know you should reach out to certain schools and not every school. You know, don't just spam out hundreds of dollars of applications. Choose ones where you actually, in fact, think you can do the project you want with people who like you, right? And talking about people who like you. I mean, you have talked to them on the phone and you've had the kind of conversation that leads you to believe they like you and that things are moving forward, right? So if you call someone on the phone and it doesn't seem like they're really responsive, that's kind of a good sign that you, you know, that person is not really, you know, open or willing to work with you or they can work with you or not interested, or you might hit them on a bad day, but they're not going to give you the second of a, you know, thought because the next step after that is, you schmoozed the faculty, you schmoozed everyone, and you start to fill out your uh, packet to get into school. All right. I'll t- the, the number one reason why people, after they've already made it past all that stuff and sent in an application, the number one reason why their application doesn't get accepted is because they don't do it right. So they don't have all the stuff in. They haven't sent their immunization records. They haven't done all that other stuff. And their application basically gets kicked out because they didn't do the second 
you know, look through to make sure every form was there. They might have submitted a packet that some of the PDFs didn't have letters from other faculty members, that they didn't have good support letters or, you know, that they weren't all in there. Well, sorry, your application won't even actually, in fact, make it to the answer department because it's not complete and the university is just going to screen you out. So hundreds and hundreds of people apply each year that didn't fill out their application packets properly, and they don't get in just because of that, even though they spent the money. All right. So for those people who have a full packet that have fully filled it all out, the departments that you apply to are going to split up all those applications by the subfield of people, what you've checked that you want to do, right? So if it's a traditional four field one, like uh, Arizona, where I got my PhD, the archaeology faculty will get the archaeology applications, the sociocultural, the biological or physical anthropology and linguistics, they'll all split it up. Of course, Berkeley doesn't do anything the same way anyone else does. So there's actually a split up in a different way. And then other schools have actual archaeology programs, Or you might be applying to like a a heritage conservation or historic preservation degree. And in that case, it could be architects or historians or whatever that are getting your... Anyway, whatever you decide that you want to focus on in school, those faculty will get yours. That means that there will be this massive list of uh, application packets that we all have to look through. So we don't look through every single one. What will happen is there's a a rough sort first where we look through a chunk of those, right? So let's say that someone wants to work with me badly and they say on their application, the person that they most want to work with is me. I don't get your application thing. Someone else in the department will get it because obviously I'm biased and will want you to come over other qualified candidates, right? So they don't just hand me all the ones of the people who say they want to work with me. They hand me ones of other people who say they just want to get into the university. And then we go through and we do a rough sort and rank them by a certain number or alphanumeric or whatever, right? Where we're supposed to look at their test scores, look at their GPA, look at what they've previously done. Look at, you know, whatever else, you know, what they're the letters from their the faculty who have written letters of recommendation. So we'll look at the entire packet and then we give it a score based on the 75 or 12 or however many other ones we've looked at. Right. And this is not some universities. You have to officially click in a number or A, B, C or something like that into a module. Others are just kind of keeping a rough list and not formally putting that thing in there. At any rate, we'll all convene together with all the, you know, ones that we think we should actually accept. And they'll say, okay, who has an A++ from, you know, on theirs? You know, Bill, what do you have? And you'll put down the 17 names or whatever that you think are A++ top scholars. And then everybody else will. And if the other people, because, you know, more... More than one faculty will review each packet. So there's some overlap, usually two or three individuals, right? Okay, so if two or three individuals all say this one is an A++, we should we should have that person. Then there will be a, is there anyone who actually wants to fight for someone who's not on this list, right? This is where that conversation that you had that, you know, you justified yourself. This is where you can get a fan or a couple of people who are like, oh, well, that surprises me that she didn't get on there. We really should review this one. Okay. So then we add it to the list. And then there's just a conversation that keeps going and going and going until we have the right number of the spots that we actually have. Now, the number of spots that we have to offer to individuals is based on whether we want to offer full funding or not, which in the case of the University of Arizona and Cal and other state universities, we do want to have full funding. Other schools don't 
do that. That's what I'm saying. You shouldn't be paying for your PhD because there's schools out there that actually want to give you a tuition waiver and they want you to have some kind of funding, right? The funding the department has available is based on how many people graduated before, how much the university has actually given the department, and then whatever grants or fellowships or other money that could be applied, right? So if a professor has a huge multi-million dollar NSF grant and they're going to pay the tuition on someone, they can kind of just handpick almost within reason, like whoever they want to work on that, right? Hopefully they've talked to you. You have a rich professor that wants to have you be on there. They'll just say, yeah, that's cool. I'll pay for her tuition and everything she's in. And then the rest of the faculty is kind of like, well, this student is covered, right? If there's another student that's a transfer for some other program or something that's in the state and they have a kind of reciprocity type thing. So if you're in the state of New York or something, you go to one of the state university schools, you're already a PhD student in something, but then you want to transfer to another uh, university of New York University and the faculty is okay with that, then you can just go straight over and you kind of, you're already in and the funding from that previous university will just follow you to this one, right? So each year, the number of anthro PhD students that we can actually accept and also master students is based on, you know, that kind of funding situation. And then the third factor is how many students does your person already have? So let's say that you want to work with someone and they already have 25 graduate students at the PhD level who haven't graduated. That's a lot. That's way more than you're supposed to be uh, advising at any one time. And the university's probably not going to let that person choose another student, even if they love you and you're you know, so that's where also those conversations to all the faculty come in huge because if you've already talked to four other people in the department and another professor only has one or two or no graduate students or they just had five graduate, then, you know, you probably you could actually have that person be your advisor and then that person be the one who's supposed to help you get through graduate school. So the test scores are one thing. Your grades are another thing. Uh, And then finally, the other thing that I've seen many, many times happen, you have bad people write you letters of recommendation. And so when we look at your packet, it's kind of like, yeah, he, he could breathe and he had a normal body temperature. This is a regular student in every single way. That's code to, yeah, don't choose this person because I don't really actually, in fact, feel comfortable putting my name associated with this individual. I wouldn't vouch for them to get a free taco, let alone get into a PhD program. We see that a lot. Excellent scores, done the whole packet, done everything. We talk to them, they like you and everything like that. And then milk toast recommendation letters are kind of a warning sign. There's something going on that we don't see because whenever we write recommendation letters, we only write them for people we like. So if we wrote, if somebody wrote you a recommendation letter and they didn't like you, that's how they submarine you by giving you a regular week one. And then the, the, another tip too, is if you have a master's, it's a, it demonstrates that you have the ability to finish graduate school. And we like that. Some places like Arizona like that because you can have your credits Uh, you can get a waiver for a lot of your other credit requirements at the PhD level. So I was able to get all of my master's credits to count for my PhD at Arizona. Not every school does that. Uh, The other thing is it shows that you have, you're usually a more mature student. So a lot of times the uh, master's student that we see apply is someone who's a bit older, who's actually done stuff in their life that are more mature, that has a greater ability to finish. And that's where Stephen 
comes in someone <laughs> who's a grown-up that that if we see that we're like oh my god wow 40 years old yes <laughs> but you'll have to type your dissertation Stephen. i hate to admit it <laughs> no I have more to get feather a typewriter anymore <laughs> yeah you have to get a typewriter <laughs> oh man oh <laughs> uh, nice nice well you know talking about this whole process, I had no idea that's how like all that work behind the scenes. Right. And, and I'm sure what you're describing is at all universities, like they probably have schools. So big places like Harvard and other ones where there's, you know, top uh, endowments, they kind of just do whatever they want. Right. How how overloaded are their professors? Oh, their professors have too many people to advise. Well, we're going to accept four because money's not really an issue at state schools. Money is always an issue. So, you know, sometimes you won't get in just because the university can't afford more students. Mm-hmm. When they're choosing, you know, just looking at these, do the, it sounds like there is a little bit of, you know, hey, this app, like you said, this application looks better than this one. It's not just a formula where it's on a point scale. And if you get over 90 points, you know, we're going to look at you, the kind of thing. But do, do the professor, well, do, I don't want you to speak for other people, but do you, does it really, does it go through your head? Maybe it did when you first started it at uh, Cal, but does it, does it now, does it, the gravity of the of the decision that you're making for somebody's life really go through your mind when you're looking at these? Yeah, it does. Uh, and because I actually went through a PhD program, right? So I know what I'm actually signing up to sentence someone to. And seriously, man, look it up. Mental health is a serious thing for PhD students. You also going to be living in poverty. That is for a middle-class person that has the, you know, pedigree essentially. And this is so messed up because we live in the United States and we want to think there's equality, right? But the kind of person that ends up getting a PhD is someone who went to the kind of school where there was some kind of interest in academic abilities, right? That they came from a family that's not going to immediately shut that plan down by heckling them and, you know, causing a lot of problems, right? I, I said the word privilege. I didn't think it was like a racial thing. I just meant you have the ability, intelligence, and you're at that point in your life where you can actually try this kind of thing. So it's a much wider range of stuff, right? And so when I see someone's application come through, I know if they accept this, what I've just but I've just, you know, said they can, that's what their next six years of their life is going to look like. And it's tough. And and so that's the reason why also I try to mentor people because I, I've been there, man. And I know the kind of stresses that people are under. Steven is your podcast boss for the last seven years. I'll write you a letter of recommendation for Bill to read. <laughs> Ooh, uh, Bill, would that actually help? <laughs> uh, if it's like a four sentence bullet point, Steven, Steven is good. He's not a felon. I would have a beer with him. No, that's not going to No, That's not a good enough. Nice. Nice. All right. So wrapping up this podcast here, it sounds like, I mean, there's obviously a lot for people to consider, but let's say somebody even, even after listening to all this still wants to go to grad school <laughs> and they say, I want to do this, uh, whether it's a PhD program or a master's program, uh, as we're recording this, it's the, um, well, as we're releasing this, it's October of 2019. So what should they be doing right now to prepare for next year? Okay. October, most of the applications are going to be due in December. You need to be on the phone talking to faculty. It has to, you should already be beyond the, like, I want to go to these four school stage. And then also you should be trying to build that 
fortitude that's like, I'm going to do this. And when I get in and they say, yes, I'm going to do it and I'm going to finish. Right. And that no matter what happens, I'm just going to keep plowing forward. But then, you know, in the spring, after you hear this, after you hear whether you got in or whatever, first of all, if you find out that you didn't get into programs, just know it's not an actual reflection of who you are as an individual because of just what I said. It's a very com- complicated, not really written down, you know, we're always moving, you know, from a place of like not knowing what we're going to do when we're accepting students. We don't know what the university is going to give us. We don't know how much money we're going to have. And we don't know, you know, what our own load is as far as being able to be there for people and help them. So if you get turned down at a school that you really wanted to go to, it's not because you're not a good scholar or something like that. It's because of the complicated rubric that goes into choosing students. That's why. Uh, The second thing is when you do get in, don't be afraid because you won't be the first one that got a PhD or a master's in anthropology and uh, get connect with your people that you know and tell them that, you know, you're going to school. And if you find out that no one in your family has gotten a graduate degree and they don't really know how to support you, try to find stuff at your university to support you because you're not alone in the situation of, you know, being in graduate school and it being really tough and uh, all those psychological and other uh, difficulties that go through your mind, right? It's a really stressful time. Please go find help. Help is everywhere and find a couple faculty or family members that are going to support you and help you because it's only a short period of time in your life. Like when you're actually in grad school, all you can think about is, oh man, you know, I got so many more years to go or, oh dang, it's over in a few more weeks, right? Your entire life you lived before that and you're going to live it afterwards. So, you know, don't hurt yourself in graduate school so that when you finish, it's not enjoyable when you're done. So quick comment on the uh, application deadlines for December. Don't make assumptions uh, as with any of this stuff. Follow the instructions like Bill said and do everything to the letter. Um, otherwise, they'll just can it to begin with. But also don't make assumptions that all schools have their application deadlines in December. Uh, state schools in California do, apparently, and, and a lot of schools do. But some schools, like I think, don't quote me on this. I would find out. But I think they told me at Simon Fraser University up in Vancouver that they actually have a rolling enrollment um, different semesters throughout the year, you know, all year long. So, so it might not be too late for you to get started on this process if you're just thinking about grad school now. So definitely look at that. But then also, I've got a two-part question for you regarding what you just said about not getting accepted. If you don't get accepted, will the school tell you why if you call to ask? Okay, so Bill's shaking his head no. <laughs> no, no. And you want to call call your ally, the person that you talk to in the department, and just say that you really want to know why and, and what happened. And, you know, we don't really have the liberty to be able to tell you every single thing of what happened. But if it is something seriously like arithmetic that we could only take three people and we thought we had nine and you just weren't one of the three, like, you know, we can tell you that kind of stuff. Uh, the other thing is we can say that the the selection committee felt like this aspect of your thing was weak. If You know, rework on that if you really want to come to the school. Please spend the next few months working on this piece of your application materials or your experience or something else. If you really want to go to that school really bad, really, you know, work with a certain individual, then maybe you'll listen to that advice. But, you know, sometimes we can tell you what was wrong in the application process. And then if yours never even made it to our desk because it wasn't complete, we can definitely tell you that. You didn't have your uh, GRE scores were not published by the time it went in. And so they just didn't even accept your application. So assuming you were one of the people that filled out all your stuff correctly, you just weren't strong enough to make it into the top whatever number you were accepting that year. 
do you know if somebody reapplies the following year, do you know that they've applied before? And does that help if they reapply that help that they already went through the process once? Uh, yes, it depends on an individual basis, but yes, it does help to apply again later because you will have already applied once. You will already have worked with your allies once. The people who wanted you to come to the school, they want they still probably going to want you to come again, and they'll help you make a better application package. Sometimes second time, sometimes third time is the charm. And there are several people who are PhD students at you know that I've met all along that didn't get in the first time. They fixed it all up and then they did get in the next time. Okay. Well, I think that was a great uh, value packed episode and we are going to call it right there. So let's say this though, let's do a little contest here. And the only person that really wins in this contest is Steven uh, and the world for calling him Dr. Wagner, because let's say go to facebook.com forward slash arcpodnet, find this episode. And if we get to a hundred likes, we'll, we'll try to push Steven into putting in his application to, to Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, on that note, (laughs) go find this again, facebook.com forward slash arcpodnet. Give it a like on this episode. It's episode number 174. And uh, and then we'll see if we can get Stephen's application episode up to 100 likes. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. And we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Bill, can I uh, sleep on your couch? (laughs) (laughs) There's no snow there either. Hey! Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records. Bro.